Welcome to the Three Questions Podcast, where we take questions from our church family and do our very best to answer them from a biblical worldview. All of us have the privilege to serve the Lord's Church here locally at Southern Hills Baptist Church. Doug Melton is our lead pastor. Randy Whittall is our pastor of missions and evangelism. My name is Daniel Snow. I get to be pastor uh, to young adults. And this podcast, if it's helpful to you, please know you can subscribe, you can rate, you can share it with other folks. Um, That's great. And we love having your questions. You can turn them in 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 three ways. You could either email three questions podcast at myshbc.com dot com and that's with the number three three questions podcast at myshbc.com you can go to myshbc.com slash contact or you can text 505-258-2076 and know that all questions will be kept confidential and anonymous okay so uh, just a curiosity question for you guys. This podcast will probably go out on Tuesday, and this is a, this is just a curiosity question. How long do you think it will take for us to know who won the presidential election, regardless of who it, it is? How long do you think it'll take us to find out? I really, this has been such an unprecedented year. I really think it will be into early December. Wow, I, I really am planning that thinking in my mind that it's going to be at least a month before we know. And, you know, I kind of almost swing the other way. I, whether for one way or the other, I'm almost convinced that this is not going to be as tightly contested an election as we all, as we are projecting. Mm -hmm. And, and even though official numbers may be in, I kind of think there'll be a pretty good sense of who won probably within a day or two. Okay, see, and I'm gonna I'm gonna find that little happy medium. <laughs> I think it's a week. I think ne- by the following Monday we'll know. So we'll right. find out, I guess. Okay, Excellent. this is one of the I would love to be wrong. Yeah, please know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. I, I personally for... expect to be on a lot of write-in ballots uh, this this election. I think I think a lot of folks will just write me in. <laughs> you know what? That's a good call. <laughs> That's a good call. <laughs> And I'm hoping you're wrong. Now, <laughs> now everyone knows Randy is available right, for the write-in. Hey, right. fun fact, Oklahoma is one of only like 13 states where the write-in vote is not a viable option. Oh, there went my chances. Because I was, yeah. I, I was going to promise we would extend deer season by another week. <laughs> that would be a good platform I to run so on. I think so, too. Yes, yes. Absolutely. We're going to extend muzzleloading season and, and archery season all the way through January. So Good call. Without having to buy a new hunting license. See, folks, the hits just keep coming. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 yeah. I, th- I think that could get me in. Okay. Year. Douglas, you have the first question, and it is... Why is it wrong for a man and a woman to live together before being married if they plan on being married anyways? All right. So let's look at this from uh, several standpoints. Number one, as, as the, the writer wrote that question, is it wrong? And we would have to understand then, so is there a right and wrong? And because for a lot of the world, they would say, well, it may be wrong for you. It's not wrong for me. Mm-hmm. And so then by on, on what authority are we basing our answer if we give an answer? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, let's come from a biblical standpoint. What, what does the Bible say? Oftentimes in our more modern translations, you will see the word sexual immorality for the Greek word porneia. Um, 
which porneia indeed can mean all manners of sexual immorality. Yeah. In the King James Version, you're going to see the word fornication, which mm-hmm. we just don't hear that word much anymore. But fornication is specifically referring to sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, if if anyone has ever heard, well, the Bible's, if you've ever heard someone say, well, the Bible doesn't really seem to be clear on it, I, I, I think the Bible is clear mm-hmm. on it. Uh, we've been in 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings, uh, 1 Corinthians, and as a matter of fact, yesterday morning, I started to say, because one of the points was about sexual immorality, yeah. and I, I had actually put a note in, in my sermon to say, uh, now if some of you are thinking, boy, it seems like he's talking about sexual immorality a lot. Well, it's because Paul is talking about it a lot. Chapter 5, he brings it up. Chapter 6, he brings it up. Chapter 7 is all about marriage and sex. Then in chapter 10, he brings it back up again. It's not just a 21st century issue. Right. And and it's not just I I feel desire to talk about it. It's Mm -hmm. that I'm just trying to preach what the Bible says, and Paul kept going back to that subject. Paul says, flee fornication. That's in the King James Version. That would be 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. It can be translated in your scripture as flee sexual immorality. But again, it's referring to sexual activity outside the bonds of biblical marriage. Mm-hmm. And so we can start there, but really I would prefer to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, the very first mention where God says for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Mm-hmm. And friends, I, I want you to know, I really believe that the way God ordered that is the ordering that is intended, that there is a commitment, there is an intentional act of leaving a father and mother. There is the intentional act of being united to one another, and then the third act is the becoming one flesh, which Paul picks up on that and uses that as he's meaning the sexual consummation of the yeah. marriage. Yeah. And so there is an order that's supposed to go to that um, biblically. So that's that's where I, I would want us to start is biblically. Uh, I, I, I know that there are arguments that come. So what if the, in, in this question, it says, is it wrong for a man and woman to live together before marriage? And some would say, hey, we're just living together. There won't be any sexual activity. It's just for financial reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, there I would say Romans chapter 8, we need to live in a way that is honorable in the sight of all men. First Thessalonians chapter 5, flee any form of evil. Um, I would say with with children uh, that we are not to put a stumbling block in the way of anyone. Again, we could go back to 1 Corinthians uh, where I am to yield my rights. I am not to do things that will offend mm-hmm. a brother. And, uh, boy, I, I could say all day long, um, hey, we're just we're, – we're just – we have separate bedrooms, yeah. no sex. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is not – the perspective that most will take Mm -hmm. on that. And again, we are to live honorably in the sight of all men. Uh, Daniel, let me hit on a couple more. So there's biblically, secularly. From a secular standpoint, uh, 
you'll have people that will argue and say, well, the research is, is kind of, you see it on both sides, but by and large, uh, couples who cohabitate together before marriage report less happiness in their marriages. Uh, there is more of a divorce frequency right. among them. And so, boy, that's just from a secular standpoint. Uh, I, I, I oftentimes tell couples in premarital counseling that sex before marriage erodes trust Mm-hmm. between the woman and the man. Uh, and, and that's because, and it especially happens among Christians, that if somehow I'm able to justify in right. my mind as a Christian that we can have sex before marriage, then after we get married, wouldn't I not be able to then justify in my mind having adultery or right. having Having an affair. You already planted uh, that seed. That's of exactly right. Uh, if I wasn't able to wait before we got married, and now I'm telling you that I'm going on a trip or I've been deployed and I'm going to be gone for six months, what makes that my wife think I'm going to wait? If I yeah. didn't wait before we got married, why would I wait now after we've gotten married? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, and then guys, just from a practical standpoint, uh, there we we sing songs all of our lives about i love you forever you know our country western songs yeah, yeah. my love is stronger than the, you know mm-hmm. just and yet when we live together we're saying well yeah but it's not that strong enough love to say to you i'm committing myself to you and a half commitment is no commitment at all. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. And and of course later on in that same chapter you were preaching from, you know, we come to that verse that we talked about on Sunday night, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Mm-hmm. And if you're beginning a relationship in with with a with what the Bible calls a sinful act, mm-hmm. I think you're you're just basically adding that sinful leaven to the future of your marriage. You're starting your relationship off in a, on, on a bad, a bad note to begin with. And so, uh, you know, uh, uh, just the fact that, uh, that it's not just, well, until we get married, mm-hmm. I think scripture consistently teaches that the willingness to disregard God's teaching at the beginning is going to affect everything else in your marriage, not just your sexual relationship with your spouse. It's going to affect, just like Doug said a second ago, every aspect of trust and and contentment and all of that. And that ability, because there are going to be many times in your marriage where you are going to be expected to or where what's going to be required is to postpone gratification for a while. Mm -hmm. And if you can't even postpone that sexual gratification until you're married, there are going to be many, many other uh, temptations that are going to take you out easily because you've not even begun practicing uh, in the area of sexual temptations. Yeah. Interesting, as pastor young adults, I get to deal with this a lot with young adults, but it's just interesting that these days it's also uh, an issue with senior adults due to tax breaks and things like that. So, okay, Randy, uh, your question is, 
why is the Apocrypha not in the Bible or specifically the Protestant Bible? Right, and because seven of the apocryphalic books are included in the Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, the Roman Catholic Bible. There are actually 14 uh, apocryphalic books or books that in one way or another, some church or some religious organization considers to be scriptural. Mm-hmm. Some of them are complete books. Some are just chapters uh, that are included. Uh, most of them are historical, but uh, they're, and, and by apocryphal, that, that word actually means hidden. Uh, they're, they're, and, and so they were usually books or phrases or writings that appeared or were written in that what we call the intertestamental time between uh, Malachi and and the and Matthew. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, those books pop up every once in a while. There there'll be some you know Dan Brown kind of uh, mm-hmm. book or novel that brings mm-hmm. them up, and and there's a lot of interest in them because people think there's going to be something hidden in there that the church for centuries has tried to hide, yeah. uh, which isn't the case. And I think it's important because what we're talking about here is really that question, can I trust my Bible? Mm-hmm. Can I believe that the Bible that we use as Protestants, the 66 books in the Bible that we study, can I really believe that this is the authoritative Word of God and that it's complete, that mm-hmm. nothing is left out nor nor added? And uh, and 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 I believe you can say, yes, we, we can. Yeah. Uh, this isn't a new... 20th century question, folks dealt with this from the second century on, even in the first century. Um, you know, we know that uh, Peter would refer to some of Paul's sayings, and Paul referred to some of the things that Peter had said. Right. And so, you know, they were quoting one another. So let me just say, how did we then decide not to include mm-hmm. these these books? And early, early Christian fathers back all the way back to the second and third centuries, they would use a lot of the same criteria that later used. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a few of the questions that would be asked. One, is that book quoted or mentioned by any of the other established biblical writers? Mm-hmm. You know, did Jesus quote it? Did Paul or or Luke, did any of the our other writers refer to it or or quote it? Does the person writing it claim to be a prophet or a man of God? Uh, do any of those books have a section where they claim to be authoritative, where the person writing says, thus saith the Lord, right. as most of our prophets did? Um, does it, uh, does it, is it consistent with the rest of the teaching uh, of Scripture? Does it, you know, or or is there something in it that seems to bring in new ideas or new doctrines that conflict with others? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it received by the early church? Was it, and and we have to recognize as early as like the 16th century, Martin Luther still didn't think that James right. uh, and Hebrews should be included uh, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't think they were. Uh, that they ought to be part of of scripture. So it's not James was an epistle of straw. Epistle of straw. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot. You know, this is not a a new question. And so, uh, and and those questions that we that were used to determine authenticity for most for the apocryphalic books, the answer is no. None of them claim to be 
um, thus saith the Lord types of writings. None of the writers claimed to be prophets uh, with a, with a new, uh, new revelation. They aren't quoted or referred to in New Testament books. But I think also uh, coming from a lot of Messianic Jewish work, none of the Jewish uh, of, of rabbis and established leadership included these books in their Tanakh, the, mm-hmm. the Hebrew version of, of the Bible. So I, I think there's plenty of historical evidence. But to get down to the can I trust the Bible, I, yes, the Bible that you read and you study every day that we use in our, in script, in our church uh, as, as our scripture, our references, can be trusted. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It, it is historically authenticated. Uh, God has blessed it for not just a few years, but for millennia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe that we can trust it. To me, the real exciting thing about our Bible is just the idea that the God of the universe took the initiative to record for us his words to reveal his character, mm-hmm. that he loved us enough that he wrote to us mm-hmm. and, and gave it to us mm-hmm. in a way that it could continue on for generations and and that he has protected that word from error. I mean, just when we took the when Doug and I took a group to Israel not long ago and we went through the exhibit of the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah. to think about fragments of of parchment that were written 2000 over 2000 years ago right. matched perfectly yeah. with what's in our bible today that can only be said there there are not any secular books that can claim that kind of authenticity from early documents mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, it is uh, it is a testament to the fact that our bible is reliable it is god breathed when we read it we are reading god's words mm-hmm. and we can trust it so good, so good. Thank God for His Word. Yes, and uh, in fact, and that, take advantage of having it. Yeah, absolutely, and having it in in our language. That's right. And there's still people groups that that Wycliffe and others are working to get it in their language. Yeah. If we have it in our language, my goodness, let's and, read it. In fact, I want to take just a minute to put a plug in this year for our World Missions Week. One of the things that uh, I am so excited about is a challenge for our church. We, as Southern Hills Baptist Church, getting an opportunity to fund the completion of the mm. Bible in the Jolakasa language, which is the language we've been working in with an unreached people group we adopted in, in Senegal. Yeah, And uh, the, the New Testament was completed not very long ago. And uh, we are hoping to challenge our church over the next four years, because that's about how long the translation team thinks it would take, uh, for us to actually fund and pray for the, the completion of the Bible in this language. It's a language that would reach far outside just the, the Casa people. There are many Jola people, speaking yeah. peoples. And to think that we could be a part of something that will not just outlive us, mm-hmm. but will continue to speak God's words into the hearts of African people for centuries mm-hmm. to come if the Lord tarries that long. I think this is one of the most exciting projects that uh, I've ever 
contemplated getting to be a part of, and I'm excited for our church to to get to do that. That is awesome. That is awesome. Okay, and last question is, as a Christian, is God making me grow, or am I supposed to strive for growth? It's a really good question. Who is causing the growth? The Bible word is sanctification, but who is causing that to happen? Who is causing that process to happen? And I'm just going to give a, a pretty short answer here. And so if it, the question is, is it God or is it the believer? Is it me as the believer? The answer is yes. Um, it is God through the striving of the believer. And, uh, and it is God who is, is making the believer, me in this case, he is making me want to grow. He is, uh, he is making me hate my sin a little more each year and hopefully even each week and each day. Um, he is, it is him who is giving me the perseverance to keep pursuing him and pursuing his ways, uh, loving his word like we just talked about. It, it is him that is motivating all of that, that is really not even just motivating, but is stirring it up and even providing the wherewithal to, to do those things. And so it is God who is making me grow through my striving that he is enabling. And and we see that in Scripture— I'll give you a quick illustration, and let's look just at two verses. The illustration would be like if we're talking about a horse and a rider uh, making it through a course. Well, who is who is getting the team, so to speak, through the course? Is it the horse or is it the rider? And you would have to say it's it's the rider through the horse's training. Um, it's it's the rider that's guiding the horse. It's the rider that's even if it's a long course, it's um, cross country course. He's going to be making sure the horse gets fed and gets water and is providing the horse all that it needs to get through it. But it's the rider that's going to be guiding it through to the finish line. Um, so is it the horse or the rider? Yes, it's the rider through the horse's training. And and so we see that same idea many times in the New Testament, but I'll just point out two of my favorite. One is Philippians 1, verse 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not talking about earning our salvation, but it's talking about this concept of growth and sanctification. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I mean, I think that sums it up so beautifully. And then 1 Corinthians 1 when he's thanking God for the the church in Corinth, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all know and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it just keeps emphasizing that, yes, 
it is we are called to obedience we're called to growth uh but it is god who gets the ultimate credit because it is god who is doing it in us we would not even want to grow if he did not do it in us right and so um, hopefully that helps that's good okay so Hey, we thank you guys for um, whether you're washing dishes, whether you're uh, whatever you're doing, you're listening to the podcast, and we want to say thanks. Jeremy Johnson, thanks for producing the podcast. And remember, the God of the Bible is never surprised or offended by our honest questions.